0: Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We, we are nearing the conclusion of the letter. And I know that's obvious to all of us because we can see it. We've been walking through it. Um, we, can, we can look and see, like in my Bible, there's, there's only a half a page written on. So, so we're, we know we're coming to the end. I think we would know that we were coming to an end, even if we didn't see it. And what I mean is, if we were if we were in that room when it was first being read. I think just listening would have put us in a place of of knowing that things were wrapping up. I mean, think about this for a minute. Just imagine being huddled up in that room in either Palestine or Rome with that small church candles lit and everyone is in the room hanging on every word they're they're hanging on every phrase every old testament quote every comparison uh, every elaboration every admonition that that the writer wrote every empathetic pastoral encouragement every every reminder of every assurance Of every promise. Imagine them listening and hearing how Christ is better. Than anything and everything. In regard to their past Judaism. And then all of a sudden. The tone changes. The the tone changes. and, And all of a sudden the pace speeds up. And declarations give way to instructions. And those instructions come one after the other. Rapid fire. All of a sudden they hear, continue to love each other. Open your home and be generous. Have others over. Help the needy. Remain sexually pure. Honor your marriage. Honor your spouse. Don't be greedy. Don't chase after money. Be content. Remember those who have invested in you, read the Bible, follow Jesus, go to church, share the gospel, serve and and share with others, join a church, submit to the leaders and pray for them. I mean, it's like it's for parents, right? It's like that day you're sending your first grader off to school for the very first time and there's this list of things you want to make sure they hear before they go or Or for those of you that have ever watched your 16-year-old get in the car by themselves for the very first time to pull out of the driveway and you're constantly thinking of all the things that they need to remember as they're driving down the road. Or that that drop off, fewer of you understand this, but dropping your kids off at college in the dorm as if you're never going to see them again. And you just want that one more instruction, one more thing. And it's the, the writer has, it's almost like he has that in mind. He knows he's got to stop writing. He's got to stop at some point. But the more he, he comes to that conclusion, the more he wants to say because he doesn't want to leave anything out. That which is going to be beneficial to them. And so what he has, what, what we have here at the end are just really helpful list of do's and don'ts. It's nothing, nothing extraordinary, just things that will be helpful for this little church coming from a pastor's heart. Because he knows that these are things that are in their best interest. And we started that list last week, we got through the first six verses and... We talked about the, the importance of hospitality and charity and fidelity and frugality. And we said those were all examples of brotherly love. And this week we want to pick up, as Hans has already read, we want to pick up in verse 7 and walk through verse thirteen or 19. And what I've done is I've kind of bunched these together into three points. Uh, we're going to look tonight at the instruction to remain on course. The instruction to rest in Christ and the instruction to respond with confidence. And I know that sounds really familiar, right? But it's what the writer has been saying throughout. It's it's repetitious, but again, it's for our good. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we now come to proclaim your word that is eternal An infallible and inerrant. We believe that through it you grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All that is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. We believe that through it we are complete. Equipped for every good work. So would you deny by it in your spirit. Would you challenge us, strengthen us, encourage us and give us rest for our souls. Use me as your servant, as you see fit this evening in Jesus name and for his sake, I pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin in verse seven and the instruction to remain on course. The writer very clearly says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Right, running the race and finishing the race well remains in the forefront of his mind. And, and we know that because these leaders that he's referring to are those who were once a part of this church, but have since gone on to be with the Lord. Um, they, they ran the race. Uh, they ran the race well. Uh, they were faithful to the end. And the author says three things about them to this small church. First, he says, remember them. Right. Keep them in your minds. Don't forget who they were and the important part that they've played in your life. They lived among you, they knew you, you knew them, they spoke face to face with you, they taught you, they ran, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, they ran arm in arm together with you. Don't don't let them escape your memory. And then secondly, he says, consider their lives and how they practice what they preached. Give thoughtful attention to who they were and how they lived. Be be intense in your observation as you think back of how they lived among you. Remember how they how what they taught affected them as well as you. He says, they taught Christ and him crucified, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. They were consistent. They left a legacy for you of faith and grace and wisdom and love. Again, don't let that escape you. You have benefited from their investment in you. And then thirdly, he says, imitate their faith. Do what they did. Teach what they taught. Run as they ran, finish as they finished. Then we say, well, how is that possible and why would they do that? What what was behind all of that? And he says in verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. In other words, it's important to remember them and imitate them because Christ in both his person and work remains the same. He has not changed. And he and his work and the benefits of his work were the same for those past leaders as it is for you today, as it will be for your children and their children until the Lord returns. He's communicating again that while change is inevitable and while circumstances and and life is just full of change, there's one thing that remains the same. God is immutable. Right? The Father does not change. The Spirit does not change. Christ Himself does not change. He is constant and consistent. And the faith that they had is the same as the faith of this little the, the faith of their forefathers and, and those leaders that have gone on before them, who he's referring to. And their faith of that little bitty church is the same because the object is the same. The leaders were looking to a consistent Savior. And, and he's encouraging that little church to look to that same consistent Savior. And so to imitate their faith, he says, you need to remain on course. In verse 9, he says, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. And it, as I mentioned to the kids, this has been this is common thread throughout the letter. It's something that he's repeated it on several occasions in different ways. And I believe he really gets the point across. Again, this is his last, this last ditch effort. And so he uses a couple of words. And it's interesting. I just read this week an article that said, don't take time to define words in the original language in the midst of your sermons. And yet I feel it's necessary that we do that tonight. Because it helps us understand What this what he's meaning, it's uh, in Miller's words, we want to pull out the pots and pans just briefly so we get an idea of what this strange teaching is all about. First, the word is the word diverse. It's actually a word that's used to describe multicolored clothing. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's actually the word that describes Jacob's coat of many colors that Jacob had given to him. And it's also used to describe alloys that are, you know, like brass, that are mixtures of, of a couple or more metals. And so the first point this author is trying to make about these, this teaching, about this false teaching is that it's brilliant. It's enticing, it's dazzling. and it's also a mixture of truth and falsehood. It's enticing. Because of the truth, and yet it's deadly because of, because of the error. Secondly, the word that he uses here is the word strange. It also means alien, and we've seen this word when he talks about us being strangers and aliens here, but it also refers to, not only does it mean and refer to foreigners of other, or people from other nations, but it also refers to that which was, um, wasn't previously known. And also unfamiliar and even unheard of. So we take all of that together and we see this this teaching, this this teaching that they were to stay away from was foreign to the word of God. Yet was was dazzling and captivating due to the content as well as the delivery. And again, it contained just enough truth to make it plausible and attractive but in a falsehood to make it deadly. And today it would be articulated and creatively presented by charismatic and polished leaders who would describe what they were teaching as a new perspective or innovative. Teaching or some sort of fresh approach, or in some circles today, it would even be described as a prophetic word from the Lord, which was given to the church for a time such as this. And the writer said, Don't, don't, don't be led away by it. Don't let it pull you away. Steer clear from this kind of garbage. If we could use the language from Acts, it would be be Berean like determine whether the teacher is telling the truth or not. Determine if what you are hearing is biblical or not. And you can begin, children, this is your cue. I I mentioned to you that I would I would give you a few questions to ask. I found these years ago in a book by A.W. Tozer called Man, the Dwelling Place of God. And simply put, when it comes down to false teaching or trying to determine whether something is true or false, there are seven questions that we can ask. But really, we could, we could put them into one because this, they all begin the same way. And the, and the questions begin this way. How does what is being taught or how does this teacher affect my attitude toward God... Christ, his word, myself, other believers, the world and sin. Okay? How is what I'm hearing and what is being taught, how does it affect my attitude toward Christ, uh, God, Christ, the Bible, myself, believers, the world and sin? And children and really every all of us, if the teaching if the teaching causes us to think more of ourselves and less of God and less of Christ and less of his word and less of others and less of our sin and entices us to pursue the things of the world, red flags should go up immediately. And once those red flags go up, we need to study further to determine specifically why it's wrong and what the truth actually is. And that's that's just where we need to begin. Now, if we take the first half of verse nine alone by itself, it appears as though the writer is being rather broad and general. Uh, In in this warning regarding false teaching, and while we can use broad strokes to apply that as I've just done, and that's okay, he really has something else in mind. He's he brings it in. He's got something else that's that's primarily on his mind. Okay, And he explains what that is in verses nine through twelve. Look at verse nine. And our second point, he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And his specific concern was this importance that was being placed on participating and in certain meals and eating certain foods that were a part of the Jewish ceremonial system. And we talked about those as throughout our study of Leviticus. If you remember some of the sacrifices, a part of that was part of the, the, the meat or the, it was returned to the priests and part of it was returned to the families. And then they would participate in and eat of those things sometimes together. And but what had begun to happen was that this this teaching was. There was pressure for those for those Jewish Christians to revert back and to begin to place too much importance in those meals, too much importance in the food, as if the food itself was going to purify their consciences, to use his language from chapter nine. And the writer says this is not true. Right. The food doesn't do that. Like Paul wrote to the Romans, like Paul wrote to the Colossians and to Timothy. There is no spiritual benefit, period, from eating particular foods. Right. Food satisfies us physically. It satisfies a physical hunger, but we are satisfied and strengthened spiritually by grace. If we were to look back in chapter 2, verse 9, we, we learned then that we don't benefit by what we taste. It is only by God's grace that we benefit from and are strengthened by the death that Christ tasted for us. And this emphasis of resting in Christ is He he drives home and makes clear in verse 10, look, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So to solidify his point, the writer goes back once again, as he's done throughout the letter to the day of atonement. He's gone back to the Day of Atonement for three important reasons. First, he's stressing that Christians do, in fact, have an altar. But the altar is the cross. The altar is the cross of the Lord Jesus. And on that cross, on that altar, Christ laid himself down willingly as the full and final sacrifice as a sin offering. And that the Levitical priests do not benefit from that sacrifice simply because they continue to look to the sacrifices of the system rather than to the Christ to which those sacrifices pointed. Hopefully I didn't confuse you. The sacrifice of Christ is not benefiting the priests because the priests are continuing to look to the sacrifices and those sacrifices are what actually point to Christ and they were missing it. Secondly, he says he's he's stressing that unlike the priests, unlike the priests who could not eat on the Day of Atonement, they could not eat anything left from the bull or the goat because All of the bull and all of the goat were either sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering or what remained was taken outside of the camp and burned on the burn pile. And so there was nothing for them to eat. But Christians, the the writer saying Christians, who, by the way, Peter calls a royal priesthood. The writer says that we are able to eat or partake of Christ's complete sacrifice, spiritually speaking. And this is exactly what Jesus was referring to in John six. He said that we eat his flesh and we drink his blood when we come to him by faith and place our trust in him for our salvation. And when we do that, we will never hunger and thirst again because we've been satisfied spiritually by him. So we're nourished by him when we come and look to him as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, he satisfies our needs. And Philip Hughes points out, he says, for the Levitical priesthood, their feeding was physical, partial and limited because the sacrifice only provided temporary external cleansing. But for the Christian. Our feeding is spiritual. Spiritual. It's total. It's unrestricted because Christ's sacrifice provided a permanent and inward cleansing and purification of sin. And then third, he's stressing that Christ actually did what the ceremonial law failed to do. Christ came and made holy what was unholy. For those in the tabernacle... If you remember, that which was inside the camp was holy; that which was outside the camp was unholy. For the Jews of this time, anything that was outside of the gates of Jerusalem, anything that was inside of the gates of Jerusalem was holy; anything outside of the gates of Jerusalem was unholy. That's why we see this language going back and forth between camp and gates. Now, you remember on the Day of Atonement that those who were involved in taking the goat. Right, the scapegoat away, or those that were in charge of burning what was on the burn pile, they had to take, they had to be washed, right? They had to be ritually cleansed before they could return back inside the camp. And the same was true for the temple. Those that were outside of the gate doing what they were supposed to do to come back into the gate, they had to be ritually cleansed. Where was Christ crucified? Outside the camp, outside of the gates. He, was, he went to that which was unholy. right? Calvary, Calvary, Calvary began unholy ground. But Christ, who was God, made that which was unholy holy. He made it possible by doing so, right? He, he went outside the camp onto unholy ground laid down his life as as the lamb of god and through his blood washed us clean provided as a perfect sacrifice he set his people apart as holy and what he did by going outside the campus he made it possible for those who were unholy to draw near and to approach him right, that which they could not do He made it possible for them to draw near and approach him because he drew near to them and approached them in the midst of their sin. The shedding of his blood outside the camp and outside the gates provided that ultimate and complete and total cleansing that provides Makes us accessible, forgives us of our sin, sets us apart as holy, and Calvary became holy ground. Because it was there that Christ, Christ laid down his life. And, brothers and sisters, listen, by doing that, Christ rendered everything, everything that was a part of the sacrificial system. Irrelevant and unnecessary, not only then, but now and in times to come, there will be there will never be another need for anything to take place. I'm going to leave it there. There's no need for anyone to ever return to the sacrificial system. Not now, not ever. And I love this statement from Kent Hughes. He says, all those who remain committed to the old Jewish system were excluded from the benefits of Christ's atoning death. But his death outside the camp means that he is accessible to anyone in the world who will come to him. Then he says this, Jesus planted the cross in the world so that the world might have access to him and he remains permanently available. And my prayer and my hope is that everyone in this room would be able to sing the hymn, this wonderful hymn by Eliza Edmonds Hewitt. She wrote, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt a sinful soul. I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the Word. The written Word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through His blood. We could sing the chorus, I'm sure. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And that He died for me. It's rest in Christ. He's our only hope. Rest in Him. So the question is, how should we respond? That's how we finish um, regularly here, right? But he answers the question for us. He lists our responses and he says we can respond with confidence. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And in these last seven verses, there are five responses. Five responses that, for the sake of time, that I'll, I'll try to apply as we go along. All right? And the first, of course, is found in verse 13. It's follow Christ. Follow Christ. And to get a clear picture, we've got to go back to Exodus 33 uh, after the golden calf incident. Uh, after that incident, we read in verse seven of, of Exodus 33 that Moses sets up a tent of meeting outside the camp. Now, this is different from uh, the tabernacle. This is prior to the tabernacle. But he set because of the sin, the golden calf incident, he goes out and sets the tent of meeting up outside of the camp. And so what the writer does, because the You know, the camp had been contaminated by sin, by the sin of the people and their idolatry. So the author takes that event, as well as the cross, to say, if we're going to seek after Christ, if we're going to continue to look to him, if we're going to follow him, we have to separate ourselves from our sin. We have to separate ourselves from 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 the world. We have to separate ourselves from any from any insufficient works based or merit based system. We have to separate ourselves from anything that's contrary to the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel. And in Jesus's words, we have to right. we have to identify with Christ and his pain and his suffering and his shame. And we have to forsake our temporal and our earthly securities and do what? Take up our cross and follow him. And we can do so confidently, right, without fear because what have we learned just even, even in the last couple of weeks? We are aliens and strangers in this temporary world. But why do we have confidence? Because we can seek the city that is to come. Why? Because we're already residents of it. We're already residents of that city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the mountain Zion. And so we have confidence in the midst of that following. As hard as and difficult as it might be, we do so without fear and incompetence because we're His. Secondly, he says to offer up a sacrifice of praise in verses 14 and 15. Christ, having having made the full and final sacrifice for our sins, the author says that the sacrifice that we now offer in our worship is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We're able to offer that through song. And in Paul's words, we let the word of Christ dwell within us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. The Lord. And while we do this here, we don't just do this here. We don't just do it once a week during a worship service. We do that every day. It's to be continual. The language is we got to be continual in that. We're doing that as a normal part of every day. It's a part of our coming and going. If we use the language from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, we do it when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise up. Continually offering that to the Lord. Third, he says we share what we have in verse sixteen. As we said last week, we're to express our love for one another, and how do we do that? By being generous with one another, by inviting one another into our homes, and showing hospitality and charity. And here he says, don't neglect to do good and to share what we have. And then he adds this this blessing. He says because it's what pleases the Lord. The Lord is not simply looking after or or desiring cold, dead orthodoxy. He desires to see us. he, He desires to see a living faith. A faith that works itself out through love, to use language from Galatians. And he's pleased when we're not only dwelling in unity, but when we are When our faith is actively expressing itself through our generosity, sharing with one another in this way, we're living sacrifices as we lay ourselves down for the sake of the other. And that's considered spiritual worship. And then fourthly, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And I know this is really, really contrary to this whole idea of rugged individualism and and our love for autonomy and individual freedom and the disdain for authority that's so present in our culture today. But he's very, very clear. It's the responsibility of members of the church to obey and submit to current leaders, voluntarily cooperating with them. Submitting to their authority, but their teaching, their protection, their care. And the writer says we are to do that because the leaders are the ones who are responsible for your souls. They are responsible for you. And they will be held accountable for that leadership. Paul says that they to the Thessalonica and the believers in Thessalonica, he says that the church should esteem the leaders because they labor among you to the point of exhaustion. And it's no wonder that he adds to that. He says, would you do that with joy? Right? Do, do it so that, they might, so that they might lead with joy rather than groaning. It's hard enough as it is. But then he comes back and says, but ultimately it's for your own good. Right? It's a blessing to you when you do that. And then finally he says, pray. In verses 18 and 19. Right, The leader's of our church who you've just appointed desire to serve with a clear conscience and they want to act honorably and live in such a way that others would want would, would say I I want to be like them we would be able to say imitate them and so he says prayer is the perfect answer because satan and the world and 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 the sin that's within us stand in the way of living in that way and he just says oh pray for them Pray earnestly for them. Because apart from that prayer, right, apart from prayer, ministry becomes self-serving and manipulative and without power. Pray for your leaders. Now, I, I want to add one last thought to these. I want to take these last two and bring it in a little more specifically, if I can. Considering the process that we're in and what we've just done over the last couple of weeks, okay? So let me me add this. As we move toward particularization and beyond, can I encourage all of us to beware of Christian media? And I say that because while it may be helpful, it can also be hurtful. It can be hurtful because we need to remember that those who write the articles... And write the books. And those who speak at the conferences. And preach the sermons. And put out the podcasts. Are not your leaders. They're not your leaders. They don't know you. They do not live among you. You've not had a conversation with them. You, you don't know whether they are practicing what they preach or not. You have no idea if their faith is worth imitating. They don't pray for you. They don't give you counsel. In reality, they they don't serve you in any way. They don't wear themselves out to the point of exhaustion on your behalf, caring for your souls. And if you aren't careful... While it all may be helpful, having inundated ourselves, having inundated yourselves with that celebrity culture and the edited presentations and the polished productions, it is possible for that to lead to a a waning in your esteem for them because they're just ordinary guys. You elected leaders three weeks ago. Wisely. They know you. You know them. They care about you. They love you. They've agreed at your request to invest in you. They've agreed at your request to watch over you. They know they're accountable for you and your soul and they've taken on that responsibility humbly and with a healthy fear. Please esteem them. Esteem them. Honor them. Respect them. Pray for them. Invest in them as they invest In you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this...